Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money Empty, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and investment advisor with 19 years experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. I also have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. You can also check out our website, moneymd.net. We have a link in the top right-hand corner. Obviously, you can listen to us on 1230 a.m. if you're local. And if you're not local, you can check us out. Just go on the web and hang out with us. Yeah, or you can download the TuneIn Radio app and listen to us on your smartphone, John, because smart people listen to us on a smartphone that's right right you can uh, it's a great way to listen you can walk around the house do your chores you know whatever you're doing on a saturday morning like today and um you can download the pro version and you can also set it up to record mm-hmm. and so uh you can then you can listen to us anywhere so it's a great way to listen but do check out our, our website moneymd.net where you can link to us there and email us your questions we'd love to hear from you you could also email us directly at info at moneymd.net well, John, I think we have a great show lined up today, some interesting stuff. Um, you know, we're going to start off talking about mutual funds. Yeah, this is something, Steve, that most people don't uh, know about. There's not a lot of uh, press on it, but mutual fund companies um, actually will uh, close and merge certain mutual funds that are do, not doing well. So it takes it off the radar, takes it out of their data, and yeah. they can kind of wash their hands of it. And they keep the ones that have done well around. But you know what? If you're in one of those crappy funds, um, it's tough. It's I mean, tough. Tough yeah. return, lower returns than, than what historically the markets have. Yeah, I think it's a great topic because so many people don't realize the game that mutual fund companies play. And it is a game. It is a game because they're rolling out new funds every year, and they get rid of the dogs, and they keep the good ones, and then they can run these ads, oh, our funds beat their one, three, and five-year lipper averages. Yeah. I mean, no kidding. That's because you only kept the ones that beat those averages. <laughs> you kept two out of ten. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, that's a great topic. And then we're going to lead into a topic um, about um, automation and about machines. Machines taking um, over the world, huh? Yeah, just about. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a new study out that says machines, uh, robots, if you will, are are going to um, automate about, uh, could automate about half the jobs in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, and it's happening at a pretty rapid pace. So it's a very interesting article. I mean, just looking at the future. So you want to stick around for that. I mean, you know, who knows? Your job may be on the slate to be taken over by machines. Yeah, so. you never know. That uh, it certainly, I think it bodes well for the economy if you think it about does, um, does. earnings and things like that. But uh, it also yeah. says that you need to get some skills that companies will pay for as well. So. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're going we're to talk through what that means to you. Um, and then we have um, 
uh, the four things to expect from the Fed. Yep. Um, actually, you know, going forward. I mean, the new Fed chairman, uh, Janet Yellen, is now sitting in Ben Bernanke's seat. And it seems like the market kind of likes her so far. It she does. Has a it positive does. reception, and uh, we'll kind of dive into what we yeah, expect had, from them. Yeah, had the Fed funds meeting this week. Yep. So, um, you know, she's gotten her first swing at the, the bat here, and so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, um, you know, what we can expect out of her going forward. It's a good topic. All right, but we're going to lead off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from the National Bureau of Economic Research. And uh, talking about recessions and bear markets, um, out of the last 11 recessions that have occurred in the past 66 years, so, yes, recessions do happen. And on average, you know, every, you know, three, four, five, six years, there's a recession. Historically, uh, eight have occurred in tandem with a uh, bear market, which is when the market is actually down by by 20%. And they're looking at the S&P 500, um, including the last four recessions. So basically what that's saying, Steve, is when there is a recession, um, GDP growth um, slows and, and sometimes even goes negative. The stock sure. market does not like that typically. And they're typically pretty highly correlated. When, the, when we go into a recession, the markets typically drop, but not always. Yeah, sure, sure. But they're not – the normal bear market is not like the two that we just went through. You know, a normal bear market is is not quite that scary. Yeah, if okay? you, I think if you look at the last 60 years, there's been three significant bear markets, and we've had That's two right. of them in the last 14 years. That's right. So. And then seven of them were more more normal, you know, yeah. 20% down, 25% down, maybe down half as much. So, yeah, you got to put it all in perspective. But um, it's a normal part of the economic cycle. Um, so – you got to take the good with the bad sometimes. All right. Well, that leads us up to our first topic here, and that is will you outlive your mutual fund? <laughs> you know, the, the fund death rates, uh, death rattles still sting is the title of the article, and it's from Morningstar Advisors Partner Analysis um, mm-hmm. is the source. Uh, but a very interesting article. You know, these mutual funds, they uh, – they play this shell game, and so that's what's happening here, right? Yeah, it's amazing, Steve. The the funds, uh, mutual funds, disappear at an alarming rate. So we've got some stats here from this article. Um, you know, this this uh, study went through and examined the performance of the funds in their final months of operation to see how they performed. But if you look at some of the data, um, this this is really interesting. There's a table here, and we'll just kind of convey this to you um, over a 15 year period. Only 43% of mutual funds survived, uh, meaning that they were either closed or merged. And the reason, they, again, they close them or merge them is because they're not doing well. So right? less than half of them are around for 15 years. Yeah, and the five-year time mark, which is you know obviously a, a, certainly a shorter time frame, 69%. Survive, so that means you know one out of you know That's three mutual funds um, actually closes. Yeah, I mean, for, yeah, forty percent of well, thirty percent of mutual funds or more close in just five years. Yeah, it's staggering. I don't That's think most people know that. So I mean, while you might be a long-term investor, your your fund company is not. Yeah, <laughs> they're gonna like they're rolling the dice and oh, that one underperformed. We'll just get rid of that one and. You know, Jim Bob there, he can just go find another fund or, you know, maybe we'll just dump him in one of our other funds here. Yeah, and if you look at the the number of funds some of these companies have and, um, you know, Fidelity, Vanguard, Swab, I mean, those are all really good companies, but they have hundreds and hundreds of funds. So basically they'll they'll rank all the performances versus their their targeted average and and, uh, the, the index. And the ones that fall below that, they'll just wipe them clean. 
They will. Right? They, yeah. they, they, are, they, are, they are purged from the records. Yeah, and one thing this article doesn't talk about here is the fact that these fund companies, you know, I have looked at some of these fund companies, one of the really big popular fund groups I won't even mention here, but, you know, they have maybe 350 funds, and they – they they launch like 10% new funds every single year. Mm-hmm. So they'll launch like 10% new funds, and then they'll turn around and close maybe 10% of their funds every year. So they're just kind of playing the odds, you know. You throw out there 30, 30 40 new funds every year, you know, the, the latest popular flavor, mm-hmm. if you will, you know, with the right title. And then, you know, they're out there picking stocks, timing the market inside these funds, and if they get lucky, they get written up in Money Magazine and, you know, and the press out there, and money just starts pouring into the funds, and they're making a killing on it, right? Well, the funds that get unlucky and pick the wrong stocks and, and fall short of the market, well, you know, after a couple years of that, right, people aren't going to put up with that. So then they just close the fund, and they get rid of that one. Yeah, and you think about how many people are in those funds that they close, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Well, very... a lot of the money leaves. A lot of people move sure. their money. But but they have those losses. They do. They do have the losses are permanent. And, um, you know, the funds are just – the fund company are just playing the odds, mm-hmm. just rolling the dice. Well, if you have 400 funds, you're, you're going to have one or two, right, that do well or – you know, yeah. you're right. It is the odds game. Uh, this this study also looked at Steve uh, the Morningstar ratings and the fund survivorship, and and there was some correlation. Four and five star ratings um, may not offer predictive guidance into future performance, uh, but they may be helpful in distinguishing between funds that are likely to close and funds that are likely to be survivors. So here's some of the stats: ninety percent of funds that had a five-star rating in 2002 were still in existence in 2007. So still 10% of those, which is kind of surprising, closed. It is kind of surprising. And 78% um, were still around 10 years later in 2012. That's 22% of the top-rated funds in Morningstar still closed and were not around 10 years later. That was... That was staggering to me. I mean, yeah, that I just, is kind of staggering because the the Morningstar ratings are kind of res, res, they're they're kind of a look at past performance. They are, you know, they're not really the future. That's right. You're not really looking at the future. They're just looking at what happened in the past. And so the other some of those obviously had pretty good returns. Now a lot of times they'll get five star ratings even though their performance isn't that good because they were in a poor asset class. Mm-hmm. Like an emerging markets fund mm-hmm. might have five-star ratings today, but emerging markets has stunk for the last three years. Yeah. So a- so they might still have five-star ratings, but people aren't putting money in the fund. So, you know, maybe the fund group decides, well, gee, we'll just get rid of that fund because it's not attracting any new money. Yeah. And here's the other thing they looked at, Steve. We talked about four- and five-star funds. If you had a one- or two-star fund in Morningstar, uh, after five years, uh, there was about a 65% survival rate. That means a third of the funds, you know, disappeared or merged. And after 10 years, a one- or two-star fund actually had about a 40% survival rate. So, you know, it's just amazing. This is not talked about. Um, I think this hurts uh, investors, you know, long term. It does hurt investors, and it's because they don't understand the game that's being played by these mutual fund companies, particularly the actively managed mutual fund companies. Obviously, we believe in passive management index funds or pure asset class funds that aren't playing this game. But an actively managed mutual funds, the ones that are the top rated, that are really popular out there, they're playing this shell game, and and people don't understand that, and they get caught up in this 
this uh, you know flushing of the funds. Yeah. You know, it's a polite way to say it. Unfortunately, all right. Well, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net. Or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. And I'm here with John Travis, who is Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break about mutual funds. And, um, you know, it's an article um, out of Morningstar, and it's about will your funds, will you outlive your mutual fund? You know, the survival rate on mutual funds is not very good. You know, if we had this kind of mortality rate... And we would only we wouldn't make it to our thirties. Yeah, this is um this is not a topic that's really talked about much. I was surprised to see this article. We we certainly understand it and have seen it before, and um, that's one of the the uh, the perils in, in investing in mutual funds because you know the statistics bear out that um, after five years, Steve, the survival rates from two thousand eight to two thousand twelve was about seventy percent. That means. 30% of mutual funds either closed or they were merged, and typically that's because of underperformance. Yeah, I mean, it's really pathetic, and it just shows the lack of commitment the mutual fund companies have to you as the investor and to, to sticking out a strategy. They don't have a disciplined strategy that they believe in. Mm-hmm. You know, So something else is going on there, right? I mean, they're not just following their heart when it comes to investing. Certainly in five years, they didn't change their whole you know, philosophy of investing. Um, so, you know, there, there's something else going on, and it is a shell game. I really believe yeah. that. And after 15 years, the you know, statistics are even more surprising. From 1998 to 2012, only 43% survived. So over half of the mutual funds close, and, you know, they, they close for a reason. They, they're not doing well. Um, yeah, and right. so they're wiped from the records, and uh, the mutual fund companies open new ones, and they're bound to have some that do well, and, again, some of them won't do well, and they'll just continue this process. But, you know, for the individual investor who are in those funds that close, I mean, that's a disservice to them. They, they haven't they, – they've underperformed typically. Yeah, and it's worse than that too, John, because, I mean, survivorship matters. You know, it's – as a fund closes and, or merges with another fund – it's rarely a positive event for investors. You know, when a fund is closed or merged out of existence, there are very real direct and indirect costs imposed at the investor's expense. Um, you know, and to quantify that, we can look at a, a, a couple examples. So let's do that. One such example they mentioned here was Laudus Rosenberg Large Cap Value Fund, which lagged its benchmark by 5% in the final quarter of operation in 2009 following a run of almost 6% underperformance in the previous 12 months leading up to its closure. And then another example was the the PBHG Core Growth Fund, which trailed its peer by more than 10%, and its benchmark by more than 15% in the years leading up to its closure. So, you know, I mean, it's a real cost because the performance kind of gets worse and worse, I think, before it closes. I have a confession to make. Oh, go ahead. Before I got into this business, I used to own that fund. <laughs> Didn't you? A long time well, ago. Well, that hit home. Yeah, at PBHG, well, I'm like, oh, goodness. You know, you know, before I was, back when I was an engineer, before I got in this business, I used to chase performance, too. And I, buy, I bought, I remember, I bought a hot fund in 1989. 
that had just blown the roof off and it was a dog the next year and it you know it lasted maybe a couple of years mm-hmm. and then of course i pulled my money but you know well, we've all made mistakes eventually it clo- <laughs> i think it merged i think it merged with another fund and it's the same type thing i mean that's what happens when your a fund is actively managed and they're out there picking stocks and timing the market they're either going to get lucky or unlucky because it really is a very speculative game they're playing. Mm-hmm. And when they get unlucky, you know, they're not going to stick around forever. Yeah. I mean, because the fun company's got a new idea and they're going to roll out new fun and they're going to get rid of the dog. That's right. That's right. So, the, so this uh, study is interesting. They went and looked at about 369 funds that closed in 2013. Yeah, there were 369 funds that closed in that one year alone. And of that total, 118 were merged into other funds and, and 251 were actually liquidated or closed down. And, and the, the statistics are interesting. On average, funds that were slated for merger underperformed their category average by 1.7% uh, during the initial 12 months, and funds that were liquidated underperformed their category average by 2.5%. So wow. um, <clears throat> they're being closed for a reason. I mean, they're underperforming, and as you mentioned a minute ago, they, there are some costs when these funds close. Yeah, there definitely are. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, and there's a variety of plausible explanations for the performance declines. I mean, one is, you know, when the fund is liquidated, I mean, there can be very direct impact on the transaction costs associated with liquidation. And those costs, of course, are passed on to the investors. Mm-hmm. Um, in many cases, there are additional costs that the fund may have to absorb in connection with the merger or the closure. But let's transparently... You know, there may also be performance drag connected with the portfolio managers who obviously are distracted. I mean, they're in the middle of a sinking ship here. Trying to find a new job. They're trying to find a new job. Yeah, I mean, they're not worried about your money. They're worried about, you know, where their next paycheck is going to come from. And, uh, you know, they're under the supervision of a bunch of lawyers, too, you know, at that point. Because, I mean, it's a litigation. You know, it's just a... It's a it's an affair that requires a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult situation, I guess, for them to merge a fund. So, but it happens frequently. I mean, two hundred or three hundred sixty nine funds in two thousand and thirteen alone. I mean, that again, this is staggering. We're, we're certainly we're aware of this, and and um, certainly um, knew it has been an issue in the in the industry. Um, but these are some big numbers, and you know, some of the worst results were, were truly were horrible in the long short equity category. The thesis flexible. Funds rank dropped 78 points, and relative performance dropped by about 21% year over year uh, before being liquidated. And there was another st- uh, world stock category. <clears throat> Excuse me, the um, American Beacon Zebra Global Equity Fund rank dropped 78 points, and the performance was uh, down 11% year over year. Uh, before being liquidated and large cap growth category, the uh, uh, mutual fund called Guggenheim Large Cap Concentrated Growth um, dropped about six percent year year to year. So again, you know the investors are, are feeling the brunt of that. Yeah, I mean it gets painful near the end of one of these funds, I'm sure. And so the moral of this story, obviously, John, is to avoid these type funds, right? Um, these actively managed funds that are doing a lot of stock picking, you need to know a little bit about your mutual fund company before you go invest with them. Mm-hmm. You know, Are they the type fund that's out there picking stocks, trying to time the market, and do they roll out a whole bunch of new funds every year and close a whole bunch of funds? Are they playing that shell game? Or are they? Do they have a disciplined strategy? You know, are they an index fund group? They're following indexes. 
Um, are they uh, a fund group that are buying asset classes mm-hmm. that are following a very disciplined strategy that, that they follow year in, year out, good, bad. They don't change it. They stick to a very uh, structured environment of how they're going to invest and their philosophy for investing. That's the question you have to ask yourself before you invest. Yeah, you know, it's confusing. I, I met with a, um, an investor uh, client this um, last week, you know, coming into our firm, and they were like, it's so confusing out there. I mean, they're like 20,000 mutual is. funds. I mean, it, it is. And, and there's a lot of different flavors, and, and it's hard to kind of weed through all the the fluff and uh, figure out what it, it really does does well. So we understand why it's confusing. That's why the money doctors are here. Well, of course. We, we'd be glad to help you, so... Give us a call if we can help. All right, that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this question we, we get very frequently. Uh, folks come in our office, and um, they basically say, how, how do I know if I'm on track um, to retirement? And that's a very uh, broad question. That is a big question. It is. Um, so that takes a little bit of um, analysis, some data gathering. We have a tool, a financial planning tool, that basically gathers data from um, you know current income to how much are you saving, what are your retirement balances, 401Ks and Roths, um, pensions. Some people have pensions out there. Right, right. Um, Social Security, and eh, we discount that a little bit, right? And um, right. put this in a big machine, and it spits out a whole bunch of different scenarios. Right, yeah, I boil it down to three questions, John. You have to you have to answer for each individual person and for yourself. One is, how much do you need in retirement yeah, that is per year? The key, that is the key question. That's the key question, okay. How much will you have from mm-hmm. pensions and Social Security? And then the third question that leads you to is how much do you need to have saved yeah. by the time you retire? Yeah. You know, if you get those three questions, you're there. And, of course, the answer has to – they have to all add up. Yeah, and if you get those the, – the income question in retirement will really drive – um, how much you need to save on a monthly basis going forward, right? Right. Because a lot of people, um, it comes down, you have disposable income of, let's say, $600 a month, and you have a choice. Do you put it towards a new car? Or do you put it towards a retirement? Well, you know, if you have a whole bunch of pensions and you've saved a whole bunch of money, maybe you can go buy a new vehicle, right? Or if you haven't done that, then you need to take that, that $600 and put it towards retirement so you can then retire on time. Because at some point, retirement, your income turns off, right? And you've got to be able right. to turn income on from Social Security, pension, and then investments is the third leg of that. So it's exactly right. It's a but, great question, and um, we can certainly help out if you need Yeah, that. so if you can answer how much you're going to need income-wise, how much will you have, and that will answer how much do you have to have saved. That's right. But we can you know, help you figure out all th- the answer to all three of those questions. All right, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or you can give us a call at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages and Gina News. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MT, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who is Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. And we are going to lead off our next segment here with a new topic, and that is um, your job taught to machines puts half of U.S. work at risk. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's an article out of Bloomberg here just this past week, John, and, you know, it's it's kind of startling. Um, it's a new uh, study that was done. Um, and what they're saying basically is artificial intelligence has arrived in the American workplace, and it's really spawned uh, 
tools that replicate human judgment that were too complicated and subtle to distill into instructions for a computer, you know, just a few years ago. But now algorithms that learn from past examples, they re- relieve engineers of the need to write out every command. So basically the computer kind of mm-hmm. writes its own programming as it goes, artificial intelligence. And it's interesting because I remember when I was in college 30 years ago, they were kind of working on this. Isn't there a movie where the machines take over the world? We should be uh, careful with this, Steve. I think Steve. there's a lot of movies like that. There's like the Stedford Wise. Remember that? That was... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a weird movie Robots. a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, there's been lots of movies about that. Yeah, I mean, the advances coupled with mobile robotics wired with this intelligence makes it likely that some occupations... Um, are going to definitely go away in the future, right? And they're projecting here almost half of today's U.S. workers, ranging from loan officers to cab drivers and real estate agents, could possibly, you know, succumb to the automation in the next decade or two, according to the study done by the University of Oxford in the U.K. How does does the cab drivers work? I mean, what is... Well, I guess they're talking about, you know, the the, um, automated driving cars, self-driving yeah. cars, right? I mean, I, if you I get believe that, that when I see it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Google already has. That's been proven, right? So I think that's really going to happen at some point. I just don't know about the safety aspect of it, if, if, it'll, yeah. if it'll pass mustard. Yeah. With legis- Interesting concept. I see that as well. With yeah. and stuff, yeah. You know, I mean, a plane could fly itself, too, mm-hmm. technically, but would they ever have it without a pilot? No. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know whether a car will... It'll be interesting. I think there'll probably still be, have to be a driver in there mm-hmm. that can supersede, can override it. But I think, yeah, you're probably not going to have a You know, in, in, in many cases, uh, a computer driving is going to be better than the human. Oh, no doubt <laughs> about that. I mean, you already have cars that, you know, break themselves yeah. and do all that, right? And and I think that's a great thing, but I just don't know if there's not going to be a person in the driver's sure. seat with the ability to put their foot on the, on the, on the brake pedal. I think liability-wise, they're going to have to have that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's a transition on the heels of an information technology revolution that's already left a profound impact on employment really across the globe. For both physical and mental labor, computers and robots have replaced tasks that could be specified in step-by-step instructions. You know, jobs that include routine and routine responsibilities that were fully understood um, can easily be automated. And that eliminated work for typists, travel agents, and a whole array of middle-class earners over a single generation that's already passed. Yeah, typewriter's gone. Yeah, that's long gone. My kids have no idea what a typewriter is. I mean, you know, and and I think retailers, quite frankly, are gone. I mean, that leads me into my latest example of why retailers are gone. Yeah. I went to the Walmart this week trying to buy, like, a camera, and uh, I couldn't even buy one. They wouldn't let you buy a camera? They wouldn't let me buy a camera. I mean, first, I went in the first Walmart. Walmart, right? I went in there, and they were having their workplace meeting at 8.30 in the morning, and there was nobody on the floor authorized to sell a camera. I was like, you got to be kidding me. What kind of management is that? So I went to another Walmart, exact same time, went in there, and they don't have any cameras there. They can't tell you if they have that camera, and they don't have the cameras on the floor. Now they keep them because of, like, I guess shoplifting they keep them in the warehouse behind the store i mean so the guy had to go back to the warehouse 10 minutes later he comes out and tells me oh that one's not available so i was looking for another one for you and so i sent him back to look for another one 
They never came back. He got intercepted by somebody else, and he was helping some other customer. And don't you know? You and then should, he said, "Oh, we don't have that one either." He should never go to Walmart on Monday mornings. It's like you got to be kidding me. This was, <laughs> yeah, this was Monday, right? I mean, it was like they wouldn't. So, who in the world is going to go buy electronics from a store like that when yeah. you can just get on your computer and zap? It's you know you got it in two days. It's on your doorstep. Yeah. It's just, I mean... Well, that's why Amazon's so popular. That's right. You know, I mean... And JCPenney's not. So electronics are going by the wayside. A lot of retailers are due to technology. Yeah, and you know, in the past, um, Steve, the, the powerful computers had, a, had a, a mammoth obstacle. They could only execute what they were explicitly told. And, you know, quite frankly, it was a nightmare for engineers trying to anticipate every command that was necessary to get the software to operate vehicles or accurately recognize speech. You know, that kept many jobs in the uh, exclusive uh, province of human labor until recently. And we've seen technology advance significantly. Oxford's fray is uh, convinced of the broader reach of technology now because of the advances in machine learning, uh, a branch of artificial intelligence that has software actually learn how to make decisions by detecting patterns in those humans um, that have made them. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that the the computers are getting, or the machines are getting smarter because they're learning from humans. Well, you know, it's like that that stupid little vacuum cleaner robot you can buy for your... Your, uh, my mother, yeah, my mother mother in law got one, you know, this and we practice it out in our, our house and it goes around and it like keeps bumping into things till it learns the layout of your entire house. And then the next time it doesn't even bump into anything. It just goes through and, you know, goes through this pattern and vacuums your whole floor. That's amazing. And it does the same thing in the next room and it just keeps bumping into stuff till it learns the layout. Wow. And it's just that's got, cool. It is very cool, and that's I mean, it's, that's essentially what they've created here is artificial intelligence. These computers that kind of learn stuff by you know, if it's something they can do repetitively, it can learn from mistakes, and then it can um, you know, it can figure it out. But yeah, I mean, the, the, there's 702 occupations that they use this approach on to analyze. You know, and the approach has powered leapfrog improvements of self-driving cars. And voice search uh, a reality in the past few years, um, and what they've figured out here is to, to estimate the impact that it'll have on those 702 occupations. They did some of their own learning. You know, they had a a program that went through and analyzed these jobs. First, they did it for 70 jobs. And they analyzed it for how much the computers could, how easily the computers could learn that job mm-hmm. and could replicate that job. And then once they got that finalized, they went and did it to all the remaining 632 occupations. And the, high that, the higher that percentage, the sooner the computers and the robots will be capable of stepping in for a human worker is what mm. they're saying. And uh, the percentage was, you know, well, occupations that employed about 47% of Americans in 2010 scored high enough to rank in the risky category, meaning that they could possibly be automated um, perhaps over the next decade or two, the analyst shows. Um, so that's pretty startling. Yeah, that's you know? interesting. Get, get your thinking a little bit, huh? It really does. I mean, maybe financial advisors could be. Well, there's, there's, I've seen articles on that, but um, there's such a human element. <clears throat> there is. I think what, what we do is um, there's certain things, obviously, you could automate in it, but and there's also why, the human Yeah, and that's factor. why I disagree with their next, next statement here they're saying. They're saying his initial reaction was, wow, how could this really be accurate? 
you know, some of these occupations that used to be safe havens for human labor are disappearing one by one. And then he says loan officers are among the most susceptible professions at a 98% probability, according to phrase estimates, inroads already being made. There's one company here that's a peer-to-peer a lender that's um, uh, that doesn't even have a single loan officer and probably never will, they say. Now, I disagree with that because, to me, loan officers are – they're kind of salespeople. You know, mm-hmm. they go beat the bushes for loans, and you'll never get a computer to do that. Um, I think there's always going to be that human interaction part to being a loan officer. So I'm not sure that I just really agree with that. The startup weapon they're saying, though, is an algorithm that not only learned what kind of person made for a safe bar in the past, but it also is constantly updating its understanding of who is creditworthy as more customers repay or default on their debt. So I think that's a pretty – it's interesting. It does learn as it goes. Yeah, and they've also talked about uh, paralegals being another um, you yeah. know uh, sector that could be eliminated. They've basically gone through and, and um, computers have, have read certain cases, and they're – instead of spending, you know, um, 100 docu- – or uh, 13,000 hours for humans to read them all, the computer can basically do it in, in 100 uh, documents per hour. So – there's some automation that can go on in the paralegal and the lawyer community as well. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, pretty amazing. A lot of things I think they're going to going to streamline in the future uh, based on this. All right, well, that leads us up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Barber, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who is Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break. Um, about an article out of Bloomberg talking about how machines could put half of U.S. work workers and jobs at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty amazing um, uh Analysis they did for, out of Oxford University, where they studied 702 occupations mm-hmm. and basically determined that about half of those are at risk of being automated in the future. Yeah, John, and, and we've seen that over time though. Technology has we changed. Have. Travel agents, um, it's changed sure. the buying. You know, you look at Amazon. Um, That's right. Simple things as typewriters. I mean, so it's happened, and and we've yeah. reinvented ourselves and created new jobs for new people. But it's changing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And they're just looking more at specific jobs here and saying, you know, like a cab driver, for instance, you know, a self-driving car mm-hmm. could could replace that. Who's to know whether that really happens? I mean, because it kind of depends on our ability to our, – our willingness to sit in a car with nobody in the driver's seat <laughs> and, you know, something that's kind of dangerous like that. That's very dangerous. And so – you know who knows whether it'll happen um but yeah i mean there're a lot of they're talking about loan officers here um how that can very easily be replaced and how there's our company already that has no loan officers that you know actually does a better job than humans do to determine whether somebody's credit worthiness whether or not they'll repay a loan and it learns as more people default and it learns the, the characteristics you know it takes a whole bunch of data points from people and um 
So, yeah, I could see where that that's going to happen, you know, over time to certain jobs. I mean, this is nothing new, uh, but it's just the extent of this that I think that's kind of alarming. Mm-hmm. They're talking about here, and they're talking about over the next decade. So it's speeding up. It's getting faster is what they're pointing to here. Um, and, and it doesn't mean, and they've mentioned here, it doesn't mean you don't need, you mean zero people in a profession. Um, it's just fewer people than you used to need. And so it's definitely a transformation for getting people that first job while they were trying to gain additional skills as a lawyer is what they point out here about the mm-hmm. the paralegals. Uh, paralegals. Um, so you just got to, I think you got to take that and realize you, you got to be, have be nimble mm-hmm. in your employment for young people, and you're going to have to be able to transition jobs pretty easily. Um, they talk about robot robotic transporters here, which I think is pretty cool here. Their smart software is transforming the world of manual labor as well, propelling improvements in automation, a- autonomous cars that make it likely machines can replace taxi drivers, heavy truck drivers in the next decade or two, according to Frey's study here. And one application that's already here is the self-navigating tug robots that transport sold, soiled linings, drugs, and meals now in more than 140 hospitals across the U.S. Um, this Pittsburgh-based firm, uh, Anthon, first installed these robots in new facilities. Humans would walk machines around, kind of teach them where to go, and then it would, because it, it would be impossible for the engineers to pre-program that in for every hospital. But then once they've learned those steps, they can replicate it very easily, and they'll tug stuff around the hospitals all day long. So every building they encounter, they say, is differently. It's an infinite number of potential consequences or contingencies that you have to build in. You'd never be able to do that ahead of time, um, but they're able to learn as they go. So these machines learn the layout mm-hmm. just like that little robotic vacuum cleaner does in my house. Yeah. Yeah, this is interesting. It goes on to say that, um, you know, this is not going to happen overnight. And certainly some places, uh, you know, having low-wage workers um, would be a better, um, you know, sure. way to spend money than an expensive robot. Uh, consumers may prefer interacting with people rather than self-service kiosk. And um, so I think this is a this is an ongoing process that is it's a part of our life. Technology, we've talked about it before, is really expanding rapidly. It really is. And I'll just say the bottom line here, I think, to wrap this up is – for today's young people, you need to to get a good education. You need to be able to learn new jobs, complex new jobs, and you need to be flexible because your specific job may get you know outsourced, if you will, mm-hmm. to a to a machine or part of it may. I mean, you may have to transition your job in some way to interface with more and more machines that are taking some of the manual task away from you know the typical typical job. I mean, it's just a and this has always been true, right? It's just reached a new level now with with artificial intelligence. So, um, you know, you don't want to bank your career on being a, a cab driver or something like that. Yeah. So, anyway, interesting topic. All right. That leads us up here, though, to our prescription of the week. This prescription is to read a financial book next month. Um, That's good. A lot of different books out there. Dave Ramsey has a good one. It's to- called The Total Money Makeover. He's had millions of copies sold. It's just a, a pretty... Um, Straightforward, easy process to understand about how to manage your money. So, again, Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey would be a great start. Yeah, I agree. That's a good one. Yeah, also, if you're not a reader, I mean, you can download, you know, sure. podcast a lot of these oh, books absolutely. and things out there. There's just a ton of reading just listen material. To it. Just listen to it while you're driving or something. 
Great. That's a good one. All right, and that leads up to our final topic of the day, and that is the four things to expect from the new Fed chair, Janet Yellen. Mm-hmm. Um, they just had their their meeting this past week here, um, the, the first Fed funds meeting. Yeah, and I think, you know, the first thing right out of the box, Steve, is that tapering is going to continue. Um, you know, Central no Bank has been buying trillions of bonds really since uh, late 2008 uh, in an effort to lower long-term interest rates. Uh, which has occurred. Um, the goal was to stimulate the economy by making it much cheaper to take out loans. And, um, you know, the Fed has communicated that they're starting to wind the stimulus program down. Since December, the central bank has re- uh, slowly reduced the bond purchases at each meeting. Um, Wall Street dubbed this tapering. So that's a tapering we think is going to continue. Um, they started out by buying $85 billion in bonds each month, and then they reduced that to $75 billion in January, and then $65 billion in, in February. So economists expect a similar reduction and bond purchases, um, you know, going forward. So this is tapering is going to stop or slow down, or it is slowing down. It's a fact. And yeah, Wall Street seems to be okay with it. I mean, yeah, it's kind I of, think that that means to all of us, like we saw last year, is in long-term interest rates are going to creep up as mm-hmm. the, the the demand for long-term bonds continues to decline because the Fed is buying less and less of them back. Okay, so lower demand means. Means higher price means means lower prices, which means higher yield right. for long term interest rates. Um, so that's one takeaway for this, um, you know. And they mention here that the goalposts <clears throat> will change. The Fed has kept its short term interest rate near zero since two thousand and eight. It's also a way to stimulate more spending by keeping interest rates very low. Uh, but investors uh, have become accustomed to these new low rates. But they're looking for signals about whether the Fed will raise rates anytime soon in the economy. So far, the Fed has said it wants to keep the unemployment rate around 6.5%, uh, wants to see around 6.5%, or inflation rise to 2.5% before it was ready to start raising uh, interest rates. Mm-hmm. But here's the problem. The unemployment rate is already around 65 It's like 6.7% in February. So it's already near that point, and Yellen still thinks the economy is too weak. So they're not going to raise rates anytime soon, I think, is the moral of the story here. Um, she seems to want to abandon the numerical targets instead focus on more uh, qualitative information. Mm-hmm. Unemployment rate alone, she said, is not sufficient uh, statistic to measure the health of the labor market. Um, she told senators, you know, last month. So, meanwhile, the New York Fed president Bill Dudley uh, said that a six and a half percent unemployment rate is already obsolete. You know, it's it's a reasonable time to revamp that. So, the Fed, you know, I think it's taken that out of their threshold. Um, you know, the way they're looking at it, and they're yeah. just going to look at quantitative means. Yeah, and what to do. That's right. And the other thing here, Steve, that they talk about is uh, weather has put the Fed in a wait-in sea boat. Obviously, it's been a little chilly lately. It has. Um, you know, it's not as cold here in the CSRA as it has been up north, but it's kind of hard to get a read on the, the recovery and the economy. So they're kind of wait, waiting and seeing what happens in the spring uh, to make any decisions on this. Yeah, it was a brutal winter, and that kind of puts them out of step at figuring out exactly where the economy is because part of, they don't know how much of it is due to – you know, the, the the harsh weather. Sure, people can't shop when there's yeah, 40 inches and, and of snow. Yeah, so they don't know how much is truly the economy and how much is due to the weather. So, you know, it's going to be a couple months probably before we'll be able to 
to really gauge uh, where we are with the economy. And Yellen is still focused on jobs, so that's her thing. That's good. That she's really focused on as far as the economy. So, you know, following the meeting, um, you know, she's taking questions from reporters. She's emphasized her deep concern about, about the labor market. And, uh, I mean, as of February, 3.8 million Americans were unemployed in the past six months. 7.2 million were stuck in part-time jobs. So, you know, the economy's got a ways to go. And I think um, long-term, I mean, nothing's really changed. I think Janet Yellen's going to do pretty much what what other Fed chairmen, Ben Bernanke, and previously have done. Yeah, and the market... Um always is concerned about Fed chairmen because they can impact the market, right, yep, with their can. decisions. And they've pretty much, um, I think, embraced her um, based on her history and kind of what she's saying. So we'll yeah, see looks, what happens. Looks like she's going to stay the course. We'll yep. see. All right. Well, that's been this week's edition of Money MD with John and Steve. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net. You can email us your questions. We would love to hear from you. You can uh, email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates, John and Steve, at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Yeah.